Welcome, uh, my name's Peter, if you don't know me, uh, and I'm uh, one of the pastors here at the church. Um, so it's great to see you, uh, and thanks for joining us. Um, we're going to be starting a new series on Ezra this morning. It's going to be a very interesting series. If anyone's had a chance to watch the video, introductory video, uh, I'm sure you're wondering where all of this is going. If not, let me encourage you to watch it. Um, if you're not sure, check it out. Check out our Facebook page. I put it up there uh, for you to check out. Uh, before we begin, let's uh, bring this time to God in prayer. So please bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, we come to you now. We come knowing that we are a small piece in the puzzle of life. And Father, we just pray that you would be with us this morning, that you would speak to us through your word, and that you would make it clear to us. Uh, Father, I pray that you will speak. Uh, This is your word, this is not mine. These are your thoughts, not mine. And above all, these are your people, not mine. So speak to them, speak to me, and speak through me, I pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. What do you think of the current political situation in Australia? What do you think of it? Are you encouraged by it? Are you discouraged? Ambivalent? Uncertain? Confused? Really care? Maybe that's just too much for you. Maybe your life is a complete whirlwind and there's just so much going on that you haven't even got time to think about other things and all your thoughts and worries are just caught up in what's going on in your life. How do we make sense of that? How do we make sense of our world and the things that we go through in life? How do we make sense of those things? As we go through this series on Ezra, I hope that we'll look at some of these questions. So before we jump into Ezra and into our passage today, let me just set the background. Um, So we're told that this is the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, uh, and his reign. So just to set this in the timeline of history, this is about 538 BCE. Uh, Persia is a kingdom out to the east, around Iran, And they have just defeated the Babylonians. Uh, I'm going to come back to that. Um, The the backdrop for the Israelites, the main people of this story, the Israelites, is that they are in exile in Babylon. Uh, And this all stems back to the very beginning when God brought them out of Egypt. Uh, Turn really quickly with me to Deuteronomy 28. If you need help, ask the person next to you. Uh, But just turn really quickly to Deuteronomy 28. Um, And this is actually a really interesting chapter. It helps us understand um, how Israelite Old Testament history plays out. Um, So in chapter 28 of Deuteronomy, you have this list of blessings and curses. Uh, God has brought the people out of Egypt and he has brought them... uh, 
they're on the verge of entering the promised land, uh, entering the land of Israel. And God says, here you go. This, here are some blessings and curses. You are entering into a relationship, a covenant with me. If you obey me, if you follow me, these are the blessings. If you don't, these are the curses. Uh, go to verse um, 47. 28, chapter 28, verse 47. because you did not serve the Lord your God joyfully and gladly in the time of prosperity therefore in hunger and thirst in nakedness and dire poverty you will serve the enemies the Lord sends against you he will put an iron yoke on your neck until he has destroyed you that doesn't sound very nice verse 49 The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the ends of the earth, like an eagle swooping down, a nation whose language you will not understand, a fierce-looking nation without respect for the old or pity for the young. They will devour the young of your livestock and the crops of your land until you are destroyed. They will leave you no grain, wine or oil, nor any calves of your herds or lambs of your flocks until you are ruined. They will lay siege to all the cities throughout your land until the high fortified walls in which you trust fall down. They will besiege all the cities throughout the land because the Lord your God, uh, the Lord your God has given you. So that's the backdrop here. And as you follow the story of Israel, so you go from Deuteronomy, you enter into Joshua, they go into the promised land, God gives them the promised land, they defeat all the enemies and take over and they live in this land. Time goes on. And they start to dwindle. They start to walk away from God, turn away from, disobey God and God sends judges. So you have the book of Judges. And that goes on for a time and you have this kind of roller coaster of up and down. And then you get to Kings and we have this record in Kings and Chronicles um, because they wanted a king. They didn't want to just be ruled by God and God's representative. They wanted a king because they wanted to be like everyone else. And so God says, okay, fine, have a king. And so the story goes on. But again, it's just up and down. And through all of this, God says, come back. Come back. And so he sends prophet after prophet saying, look, you've disobeyed and there is punishment, but look, I'm going to give you a second chance. Just turn back and follow me. Walk with me, obey me, live the way that I've given you to live. But it just keeps going and they don't. And so if you know the story, that the, the kingdom of Israel is split into, you have the ten tribes in the north and two tribes in the south. And in the north, the Assyrian Empire comes in uh, 722 BC and basically defeats them and scatters them through the empire. And that's really important to remember. They're scattered through the empire. Um, The southern kingdom, Judah, is spared for a time and again, God is sending them prophets to bring them back that he might restore them. But if you, as you read through Kings and Chronicles, that just doesn't have, again, it's just up and down. And it gets to the point where God sends them Jeremiah. So flip over to Jeremiah 25. Verse 
God's tried time and time over again. He sent prophet after prophet and the people aren't listening. So this is towards the end of Jeremiah's work. He's tried to warn the people and they're not listening. And so we get to this point. Chapter 25, verse 8. Therefore the Lord Almighty says this, Because you have not listened to my words, I will summon all the peoples of the north and my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, declares the Lord. And I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all the surrounding nations. I will completely destroy them and make them an object of horror and scorn and an everlasting ruin. I will banish from them the sounds of joy and gladness, the voices of bride and bridegroom, the sound of millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole country will become a desolate wasteland and these nations will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. And so that's what happens. The kingdom of Babylon comes in, defeats the southern kingdom, defeats Judah and sends them into exile. Except they, they're just taken into Babylon. They're not scattered through um, the empire. They're just taken to Babylon. And so this happens around 586 BCE. Now just imagine for a moment how you would feel in all of that. I imagine there were those who were completely devastated and just felt hopeless about their situation. They've been defeated by Babylon, this great empire. It's the end of the world. Just the end. We've disobeyed God, we've walked away God. It's the end. But then you have this other group of people who, maybe this is what you're like, um, they're like, okay, we've lost, but let's just get on with it. Let's just live our lives. And so they go to Babylon and they start a new life. They forget Israel. They forget the past and they start a new life for themselves. They, they get into business. They build their families and they're just like, okay, we're here now. Just move on with it. It's the second lot of people. And then you've got these people who have heard what the prophets have said and they're like, hold on a second. There's something missing here. Yes, we've been defeated. Yes, we've been taken into exile. But there's more. There's more. Read verse 12. But when the 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation, the land of the Babylonians, for their guilt, declares the Lord, and will make it desolate forever. I will bring upon that land all the things that I have spoken against it, all that are written in this book and prophesied by Jeremiah against all the nations. They themselves will be enslaved by many nations and great kings. I will repay them according to their deeds and the work of their hands. And I don't know if you remember in verse 11 just then. It was only for 70 years. So you have this group of people who remember these words and say, hold on, yes, we've been feared, we're in exile, but God has said it will only last for a certain amount of time. And so they hope, they wait, and they pray that God will fulfill his promises, that he will be true to his promises, and that God will come through for them. Turn back to Ezra. 
So this is where we're at. All of this has happened. They've been taken into exile and the 70 years are up. We're now around 539 BC. It's not exactly 70 years. There's some other technicalities there I'm not getting into. But this is where we are. The time has come. Cyrus, king of Persia, comes onto the scene. How many of you know the story of Daniel and the writing on the wall? Mysterious hand appears and starts on the wall to pass judgment and they call Daniel to come and interpret what it means. No? Okay, the, the saying, writing on the wall, that's where it comes from. Daniel chapter 5, go and read it. King Belshazzar, king of Babylon, after Nebuchadnezzar, is having this massive party and all of a sudden, this hand appears and starts writing on the wall and nobody can understand it, nobody can interpret it. He calls all his magicians, all his wise men and nobody understands it. Long story short, that's when Cyrus appears. God judges Babylon as he's promised. Cyrus appears, defeats the Babylonians and the Persian Empire takes over. And that's where we're at. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the words of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, which we just read, the Lord moved the heart of King Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it into writing. And so God promised, I will deliver my people. And he does. He's bigger than world politics. He's bigger than what is going on. And for the Israelite, before all of this happens, they were, who are, we're this tiny nation. We've been defeated and taken into exile. How is this going to turn around? Yes, God said he's going to do it, but how is this going to happen? But despite this mighty kingdom of Babylon, and this question of how God is going to save them, he does. And he does it through worldly means. He does it through secular means. Now we're told here that the Lord moved the heart of King Cyrus. Let's be ignorant. Honestly, King Cyrus believes in his own gods. He doesn't believe in this God. This God's the loser God. His people got to my God's better than him. So he believes in his God's. But King Cyrus is a smart politician. He's not some silly guy. He's king for a reason. He's defeated the Babylonians. He knows what he's doing. So what does he do? He says, hey, all you people who the Babylonians have taken, go back home. Go rebuild the things that are most important to you. Here's some gold. Here's some silver to go do it. Here's some money out of the treasury. What's he doing there? He's making them happy. Happy people, happy citizen, happy empire. He's not a dumb guy. He knows what he's doing. But God uses this. God says, sure, you do what you want. I'm going to take that. I'm going to use it to bring my people out back to the land where they will rebuild the temple and they will return to me and worship me. Now, 
Cyrus is a funny character because he's actually mentioned by name in other places. He's not, he doesn't just show up. Isaiah, you don't have to turn there, but let me read it to you. Isaiah 44, 28. The Lord says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. He will say to Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt and of the temple, let its foundations be laid. And so before Cyrus even appears on the scene, God's already made this plan. God said, this is how I'm going to do it. And just like he used Nebuchadnezzar to bring the Israelites into exile, he uses Cyrus to bring them out. He uses worldly events for his purpose and he promises that he will do these things he promises that he will deliver he promised that he would judge them and exile them but he also promised that he would deliver them a couple of weeks ago we were reminded of one of the promises that jesus made jesus says that i'll be with you until the end of the age matthew 28 Jesus promises that he will always be with us. When my family and I were in Taiwan, it was far from easy. Um, It was not an easy time as we lived there. But we were there because God took us there. We were there because we believed that that's where God wanted us. And despite the hardship, there was never a sense that we were left alone. It was hard, I'm not discounting that. But there was never a sense that we were left out on the sidewalk. God was always there. And in little ways, he reminded us of that. I've got a couple of friends um, who are missionaries in a place where Christians aren't allowed. Um, and... Uh, they started, or they went out, they didn't start, they, they went out a couple of years ago, uh, early last year. And in the first six weeks, okay, keeping in mind that these people have given their lives to serve God, to tell people about Jesus, and in their first six weeks, they got astro, they got dengue fever, they were hospitalised, their whole family got sick. Six weeks, land, they got onto the ground in six weeks, and this all happened. I was just like, God, what are you doing? But God says, no, I'm with you. He doesn't promise that it's going to be easy, but he says, I will be with you. And God keeps his promises. What's more, as we live in this world, as we see more and more people turn away from Christian truths and as we see people rejecting God, it's easy to go, what's going on? What's going on in the world? But as we've seen, God uses what's going on in the world. He uses Nebuchadnezzar, he uses Cyrus to fulfill his purposes. And so when you look at the world and you go, what is going on? You look at religious extremists, you look at the poverty, you look at all the natural disasters that are happening, you go, what is going on? But God's bigger than all of that. God's bigger than all of that. And that's the big stuff. But it's also the God of the little stuff. Your work, school, your family, 
None of those things are beyond him. God's bigger than that. And so we see that God moves the heart of Cyrus. And it's really interesting because if you know the story, you go back to the Exodus. God moves the heart of the Pharaoh as well. But he hardens it. In the same way that God can soften his heart, he hardens their heart as well. And so God hardens the heart of Pharaoh, if you know the story, so that he can show he is. God hardens the heart of Pharaoh so that he can deliver his people, the Israelites, from slavery in Egypt. And as the story goes, Pharaoh just keeps hardening his heart more and more and more to the point where the plagues happen and ten plagues later, with the death of his firstborn son, Pharaoh says, go. And God's over all of these things. God's got all of this stuff, this worldly, this secular stuff in his hands. Now, it's not out of his control. As I look back through history, I love history. If you want to get me talking about anything, start talking to me about history. Um, But I look back at history and I see these glimpses, and these are my opinions, they're not biblical truths, so don't go around telling people that this is the word of God, please. Um, As I look back, I see these glimpses of God at work. Let me give you some examples. Um, Constantine, uh, Roman emperor in 300 CE, he becomes a Christian. And all of a sudden, Christian persecution comes to an end and the church blooms. It, it, it continues to grow in a way that it hadn't before. And then you move into this imperial age where Britain, Spain, France, the Netherlands, they're all going around the world because they've decided that they can actually cross a lake in their boats. And they go around colonizing all these countries. And the church is like, hey, that's great. So they send missionaries and jump on those boats and as these countries are being colonized, the gospel is going out. Now, I don't necessarily think that there's, everything is good about imperial colonization, but the gospel went out because of it. Let me keep going. Cultural revolution in China. Persecuted Christians led to the growth and the birth of the underground church and the biggest population of any ethnic Christian group in the world today. There are estimated a billion Christians in China. Sorry. There's a billion people in China. There's a lot of Christians. (laughs) There's a lot of Christians. But in the millions, sorry, not billions, in the millions in the church in China. And it started because the Cultural Revolution happened and they started persecuting the church. If that didn't happen, I doubt the church would have grown the way that it has. Those of you who remember or have had a chance to share, my family came from Cambodia. They escaped out of Cambodia because of Pol Pot, Khmer Rouge regime. And they ended up here in Australia. And they were found in a church community. 
And that's where I grew up, and that's where a lot of why I'm here today comes from. God uses the, the world's events. God uses the things that happen for his purposes. Now, it's easy to see it in concept, but it's not always easy to see it when we're in the thick of it. Oh, one more. Globalization. I love this. Globalization. God is bringing all the people that the church is not going out to reach to our doorstep. Because the church is not going out to share the gospel, God's bringing people here so we can share it with them. Globalization is driving the cause of the gospel. So I don't know about you, but when you look at the world, as you look at society and the direction of culture, I don't don't know what you think. But maybe that actually doesn't matter to you because right now there's stuff going on in your family and it's just too much for you to handle. Maybe you've got friends at school or work or or long-time friends that you just want them to know Jesus. You want them to know the truth. You want them to know the love and the grace that is made available to them. And you just you, you pray for them, you, you try and share with them, you you with them, but nothing's working. It's hard when you're in the thick of it. But God's bigger than that. God moves nations for his purpose. He can move the heart of a person that you love. He can turn around the the circumstances and situations that you face in your family, in your work, at school. I'll do it for his purposes. But he can turn them around. He can use them. However negative, however bad, however horrible they might be, he can use them and he can turn them around for his purposes And really, that's what God is about. God is all about redeeming people, redeeming this world. All the way back to Genesis, when everything was messed up, when Adam and Eve chose to do what they wanted instead of what God asked of them, and sin enters the world. From that point, we have this great story of God's redemption of God's plan to, to save and to restore what is broken. And so if you haven't picked it up already, there's this, there's this picture of the Exodus. Let me just recap the story really quickly if you, haven't, if you don't know it. Israelites are in Egypt. They are in slavery. And they're suffering. And God says... I hear their cry and I am going to save them. And so he sends them Moses. And Moses comes and he, by God's power, delivers these people out of slavery, out of Egypt. And he takes them on this journey to a new land, the promised land of milk and honey. And that's where they will enter into relationship with God and live under his guidance and his blessing. 
Exodus story in short. And here we actually see a little bit of this happening, and we'll see this throughout Ezra. But in place of Pharaoh, we have Cyrus. In place of uh, the Egyptians, you have the Babylonians. In place of slavery, you have exile. And when the Israelites left Egypt, they went to the Promised Land. As these people leave exile, they will return to the promised land. There's also a neat little um, hint in there as well. Verse 6. I found this really interesting. Have a look at it. All their neighbours assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock and with valuable gifts, in addition to the free will offering. If you jump back to Exodus 3, as God is planning all of this with Moses... Um, verse 21. Don't feel like you have to flip it there if you haven't, but that's, if you've got it, just have a look at this. Verse 21. Exodus chapter 3, verse 21. I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the people, so that when you leave, you will not go empty handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters. And so you will plunder the Egyptians. Just a neat little tidbit. But God puts that there. This is placed there to remind us God is doing something new. This is the second exodus. A return to the promised land. And even this tiny detail is put in there as a reminder. More than that, King Cyrus brings out all the articles of Uh, belonging to the temple, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away. And we see this. It's in Jeremiah. I'm not going to look it up. Um, But we, Jeremiah talks about this. Jeremiah says, I will return what has been taken when my people are returned to the land. If you're really interested, I can tell you later. But all these details are there. God's promised that these things will happen. And this is a return to the promised land. Because this is what God is about. He is about redeeming people. He is about redeeming his world. It's easy to wonder sometimes, what can I do? What could I possibly do to make a difference in this world, in in the lives of people around me? What could I possibly do? And maybe for some of you, you wonder, we're just a handful of people, we're 30, 40 people. What could we possibly do to make a difference? How do we make a difference in the lives of our friends and our family, our colleagues at work and at school, our neighbours? God's bigger than that. Whatever you have to offer, God can use it. And he's interested in the details. We have this list, this this inventory of items from the temple. And for us, it was like, why would you... That's boring. I don't want to read a list. 
next week's going to be even more interesting. It's this massive genealogy. It's not a genealogy, sorry, it's a list of people. But it's like, what is, what's the point? What, what, how does that tell us anything? What it tells us is that God's interested in those details. God is interested in the 29 silver pans, the 30 gold dishes, the 30 gold bowls. Who remembers? We, we basically got rid of all our... Um, our crockery when we went to Taiwan, it's so cheap to buy. I, I, I barely remember half the stuff that we've got. We're given a list that has lasted thousands of years for us to read because God cares. As we go into the next chapter, God cares about those people. And as you read through the Bible and you come across these massive lists of names, it's like, what is the point? Because God cares about each and every person. Each and every item in this list matters to God because it reflects the worth that He has for you. It matters. And so when you look at life and you go, I don't know what I can do, remember that God is bigger than that. God is so much bigger than that. For us as Christians, we have such a privilege over the people who read Ezra when it was first written. Because as you go through the story of Ezra, it doesn't finish well. Turn really quickly to Ezra chapter 9. We're just going to jump to the end, read the the end of the story, and we're going to come back over the next few weeks to fill in the gaps. But Ezra chapter 9, verse 8 and nine. We're going to read verse 8 and 9. Ezra chapter 9, verse 8 and 9. But now, for a brief moment, the Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and giving us a firm place in his sanctuary. And so our God gives light to our eyes and a little relief in our bondage. Though we are slaves, our God has not deserted us in our bondage. He has shown us kindness in the sight of the kings of Persia. He has granted us new life to rebuild the house of our God and repair its ruins. And he has given us the wall of protection in Judah and Jerusalem. The end of the story isn't actually done. And as you read through and get to the end, you're left wondering, is that it? Is that where the story ends? But we live in hindsight, we live in history where we can look back and that is not the end of the story because the story goes on. They do complete the temple. They do rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and life for them is restarted. But they continue in foreign oppression. The Persians at this moment Alexander the Great, and then the Romans. During the Roman times, a man comes. A man enters this world. He is born in obscurity and lives a fairly obscure life, really. 
but this man would change the course of history. Whether we believe that this man has any worth, you can't debate that this one man has changed the course of history. His name, of course, is Jesus. And so the story goes on beyond this, beyond this moment of Ezra. And it moves forward to Jesus when Jesus comes and says, whatever was started right here, I will finish. And so this exodus that we see, this return of the exiles that we see being born here in this chapter, is just the beginning. The return to the promised land, the return to a restored relationship with God, a return to the Garden of Eden, where everything is made perfect, a return to everything that we dream of. find its fulfillment in Jesus. Now you're probably wondering, well, why aren't we there yet? Because like Ezra and the people in Ezra's time, we're in the middle of it all. The second chapter hasn't been, the end of the chapter hasn't been completed. It's been written, but just not there yet. And so we look forward As we read Ezra, we look forward to when Jesus will complete all the things that are starting here. The temple that is being rebuilt, where the presence of God dwells, Jesus will be the presence of God in person. The the redemption and the correction and the restoration of all that has gone wrong in the world will see its fulfillment in Jesus. And relationship with God will be restored in Jesus. But we, like Ezra, are in the midst of it all. We're not there yet. Jesus has started the work, but it's not entirely complete. Daniel was one of the people taken into exile. And during his exile... He had some dreams. He had dreams and visions of what the future would look like. Daniel chapter 7. If I can find it. Daniel chapter 7. Verse 23. He has this dream. He gets... He has this dream and he's wondering what is going on and so he's given an explanation. Verse 23. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and we will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who come from this kingdom. After them another king will arise, different from the earlier ones. He will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his saints and try to change the set times and the laws. The saints will be handed over to him for a time, times and half a time. Now there's lots of stuff in there that probably needs more explaining. But the picture there is that things are going to get worse. And I don't want to sweep that under the carpet. The reality is, from God's point of view and the story of the Bible, you can read it in Revelation as well, 
is that the course of human history is going to get worse. If you think Christians have it bad now, just wait, because it will get worse. Because God doesn't promise that it's all going to be smooth sailing. It's going to get worse. But even as it gets worse, remember that the heart of the gospel, the heart of God, he is all about redemption. And so even though things are going to get worse, it's not out of his control. Just like the exodus, just like the exile, just like Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus. All these things that will happen are in his control. And he will use them for his plan of redemption. Now, knowing all of that, you can respond in three ways. You can think it's the end of the world, I give up, there's no point. It's just going to get worse, it's too hard. Just put it in the too hard basket. Or maybe you'll be like, well, we've lost, let's just get on with it. Let's just get on with life. Whatever we can do, let's just do it. Let's just make the most of what we can. Or maybe you can go, you know what? God's done this before. God's made his promises. He has worked through history. He has worked through time. And he has redeemed his people over and over again. And even though things will get worse, I'm going to trust that he's going to do it again. Let me, let me, let me share you, with you another bit of history. American Revolution. Great historical event turned America around. But after the American Revolution, there was this massive moral slump. What do I mean? Well, drunkenness became an epidemic. Uh, Out of a population of 5 million people, 300,000 were confirmed drunkard. What's that? 6%? 6% of people were confirmed drunks. Profanity was of a shocking kind. For the first time in American settlement, women were afraid to go out at night for fear of assault. Bank robberies were a daily occurrence. This is towards the end of the 1700s, by the way, if you're wondering. What about churches? Maybe this is going to sound a little bit easier. The Methodists were losing more members than they were gaining. The Baptists said they were, had their most wintry season. It was cold. The Presbyterians in general assembly deplored the nation's ungodliness and people still do that. In a typical congregational church, 16 years in this particular congregational church, 16 years had passed before a new person had entered the church. The Lutherans were so languishing that they had discussed uniting with the Anglicans who were even worse off. The, one of the Anglican bishops in New York quit. He had confirmed no one, he had baptised no one for so long that he decided that he was out of work, so he looked for other work. The Chief Justice of the US, John Marshall, wrote to one of the bishops and said, the church was too far gone to ever be redeemed. And Voltaire said Christianity will be forgotten in 30 years. This is the end of the 1700s, by the way. Sound familiar? Uh, They went to one of the universities. They took a poll at Harvard. 
they took a poll at Harvard. Not one Christian in the whole student body. They took a poll at Princeton, which was meant to be a Christian place, and they discovered there was only two Christians in the whole student body. Students rioted. They hold pretend mock communions at the universities. They had anti-Christian plays. They burned down um, one of the the, uh, Christian halls at Princeton. They forced the resignation of the president of Harvard. They took a Bible out of a local church in New Jersey and they burnt it in a public bonfire. Christians were so few in this time in the uh, 1790s that they met in secret and they had a secret code to keep their notes and minutes. This is the end of the 1700s. But how did that all change? Changed through prayer. A whole group of people through Britain, through the US and throughout other parts of the world started to pray. And there was this great revival, there was a great awakening. We call it the second, second great awakening. Um, I could go on. There's a great story to tell and I'd love to share it with you one day, but I'm conscious of time. Um, but all of this change... Actually, let me read the end of this story because it's actually really, really good. Um, where is it? Oh, where is it? Oh, it's not there. I haven't got it in my notes. But let me just tell you this story because it's actually really, really cool. In one place... Things were going so well that the local council had no idea what to do with their police. And so they went to the police. What are you guys doing? We're sending our police officers in, um, in quartets to sing at church. They had nothing else to do. And so the police were going out to churches to sing. That's the end of the story. But... Whatever you think of the state of things now, whatever you think of the world and the state of things, God can change it. And he will. Because the rest of Daniel's vision goes like this. Verse 26, The court and power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power and greatness of the kingdoms and the whole heaven will be handed over to the saints, the people of the Most High. The kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will worship and obey Him. All things one day will be completely brought under the authority and power of Jesus. God is bigger than whatever life can throw at you. Whatever politics, whatever society, whatever culture will do, God is bigger than all of that. And so as we go through Ezra, we will I hope that we will be encouraged and see God at work. God at work in history, but God at work here. And He will. Because that's what is Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now and
Father, I just ask that you would take the situations and the circumstances that are in this room, that are in the lives of the people here. And I pray that you will speak your truth and your comfort into them. I pray that we would know that you are bigger than whatever life holds. That whatever circumstances, whatever situations, whatever the world might look like, you are bigger than them all. And that you can move nations in the hearts of kings and queens, politicians and prime ministers for your glory and your purpose. So Father, I pray that we would see more of you at work and that we would know that you can work. And so we commit these things to you. In Jesus' name, amen.